Hello and welcome to Sigma Sports Presents Matt Stevens Unplugged. And this is the Sep Kuss episode. One of the rising stars of the Peloton, we chatted about everything from growing up at high altitude in Colorado to the special bond that grew between all of his Jumbo Bisma teammates whilst living in a bubble. And of course, his own aspirations to one day win a Grand Tour. Also, he chipped in with some top TV recommendations. So let's get on with the pod. Hello and welcome. Are you ready? Because it's that time again. Sepp Kuss's rise to becoming one of the best climbers in the world has been nothing short of meteoric. Now you'll see him at the front of the bunch no matter the classification or gradient, most notably at the Grand Tours, riding selflessly for Primoz Roglic. He's a real team player, and while we'll never know for sure if he had his poker face on while recording this pod, we can certainly hope so. Well, Sepp, thank you very much, uh, mate, for, for joining us. As I say, you were, yeah, 50 seconds late, but we'll let that slide and try and move past it, really, mate. But no, thanks very, very much. Uh, uh, how are you? Oh, I'm great. Um, yeah, it's an uh, interesting off-season for me at the moment. Um, didn't, didn't go back home to the U.S., so um, sticking around in Spain, which has actually been, been really nice. And, uh, yeah, change of pace and enjoying... Um, having uh, some time in nice weather because usually if I'm back home, it's already um, close to winter time. So, uh, yeah, a little bit of change is always nice. Fair enough, mate. Well, for, generally speaking, at the start of the podcast, I like uh, after the initial introduction, I just like at my guest to just describe um, where they are. So describe the room, but also where in the world you are as well. Yeah, let's see. I'm uh, upstairs <laughs> in uh, in my girlfriend's parents' house, actually, okay. uh, just outside of Barcelona. So very nice. Um, yeah, we've uh, we've been here for a little bit. Uh, it's like it's like staying in a Michelin five star restaurant with all the Catalan cuisine and uh, good company. So yeah, it's been really really nice. I, I know um, you're you're kind of learning Spanish. Well, you're learning Catalan in particular. How how is that going? Oh, it's it's okay. I mean, um, yeah. At, at the moment, I can function okay with uh, yeah Castellano, but um, yeah, still Catalan is um, the next uh, bridge to cross. So it's uh, I mean, with the uh, with the Catalan family, sometimes they have to consciously switch to. Uh, yeah, Castellano, so I can right. understand a bit more. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's a, a nice immersion, I guess. Fair enough, mate. Now, I was looking at, um, I do follow you on Insta, and I'm, I'm always intrigued by your, your stories. It was a, a lot of fun. Some great views, training rides and stuff. But the other day, I actually thought, it's interesting that you said you weren't actually in the United States. You hadn't gone back home. You'd stayed in Spain. And, and not, normally you're based in Andorra, aren't you? But um, th- there was, I thought you were in America because... You're with some mates. Yeah. You had like this, um, I don't know, it's a flat back vehicle just full of meat. I've never seen so much, so much meat um, in the back of one, one truck. What was all that about? Yeah, yeah. There was, um, <laughs> there was a sale, online sale of this, uh, yeah, it's more or less a meat distributor in, in the Basque country. Yeah. And um, yeah, we, we ordered, uh, oh, I don't know how many kilos of, of uh of steak uh t-bones uh chuletons uh tomahawks everything so had a big big grill off and um i think there's still 
tons left in the in the freezer. So I yeah. actually thought for a moment that you'd you you're going to set up like a pop up shop selling meat on the street. Uh-huh. It was amazing. I mean, it, and there was this lovely kind of pan across the kitchen worktops, and it was just covered in these enormous joints. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. Oh, they're they're beautiful. I still have visions of the, <laughs> the salt just melting into the meat. And, oh, amazing. Is that is that something? The love of barbecues and stuff, I guess that's something that you've kind of grown up with a little bit again, grown up in Colorado. Is that something that was always kind of popular around the house? Yeah, a little bit. Um, yeah, I think also when I was uh, going to school in Boulder, we we always had, had barbecues. And um, yeah, for, for me, I love love steak. I could eat it uh, every day of the week if I... <laughs> if that was possible so any any chance to throw something on the grill is uh yeah pretty nice fair enough mate well um it's it's been just kind of nice talking about steak but um i want to kind of look a little bit uh back a little bit on your kind of career so far first off really when you look what you're 26 now aren't you and when you look back at the last five years of your career what sense do you have of yourself if you know what i mean how, how do you reflect and because you've come such a long way and you're one of the most preeminent we just see you all the time although you haven't like won a grand tour yet i mean you've won some big races but you anybody switched on a grand tour mountain stage you're there at the front you know riding i mean uh, how do you kind of perceive yourself yeah i mean like you said it, it's been um been a big uh big jump from, from where, where I started, what I perceived myself as when I, when I started, um, bike racing or when I started road racing, I never thought I would be in, in the position I am now, you know, it's all yeah. come as, as a surprise almost. Not that it's like, it just comes my way. I mean, I've, I've worked really hard and, and I, I love the hard work, um, and the, the process of it, but yeah, if you asked me even last year, oh, will you be riding the tour? I would say no way. I'm, I'm not good enough to to ride the tour. But sure. I think yeah, every every opportunity I've had, it, it kind of brings me uh, further along, and I say, okay, yeah, maybe I can do this. Um, not not that I have a, a lack of self confidence or anything, but yeah, I don't know. It's just been such a crazy, um, crazy ride, crazy development that every year I'm like, Whoa, what the, what is going on? You know, how sure. am I here with, with these guys, you know? Cause I always think of so many races when I, when I first turned pro where I was just struggling and I would think, how do those guys in the top five, top 10, how do they go so fast? Yeah. I, and that was just unbelievable to me. So to think that I'm in that position more or less now, it's like, okay, you know, you just have to keep, uh, pushing forward fantastic i mean we'll we'll talk a little bit more about the specifics i think of, uh, of the last couple of years and, and this year in particular in, in a little while but um what i want to know about is your kind of formative years a little bit as well just to get a sense of kind of you growing up in uh, in colorado your dad was obviously a massive influence from a, a sporting perspective primarily a ski background but what was your can you remember your first memory or what is your first memory of of throwing your leg over a bicycle Oh, I think my first mem- usually, um, yeah, it would be with my mom. Actually, she was always into cycling, uh, mountain biking. So she would kind of drag me out on on mountain bike rides when I was little. And uh, a lot of the times, I I didn't like it. I thought, ah, oh, you know, come on, mom, go easy on me. But uh, 
yeah, I think it wasn't until later on that there was just kind of a local um, uh, development program starting in, in Durango. Yeah. And at the time it was just me and uh, three or four other friends. And there was a really good coach in town, Chad Cheney. And um, we, we kind of convinced him to take us out on rides every every week, twice a week or something like that. And um, yeah, then then was when I kind of really fell in love with with riding and the, the community aspect of it and learning the, the skills, which were at that time on the on the mountain bike. And sure. Then it just went from there. What, what, um, just out of interest, what mountain bike what was your first bike that you had? My first bike, I think it was a Jameis steel okay. mountain bike. Yeah. And that was, that was a hand me down from my mom. So it was, the seat was slammed all the way down and <laughs> yeah. didn't fit at all. Um, and, but I think at that time, the like teenage or, you know, geometry specific teenage bikes were still kind of new. So if I saw a friend with a, a bike that actually fit. I said, "Whoa, how did you get a bike that actually fit?" Because I was still on my mom's bike. That was <laughs> wow. Yeah. So you were mountain biking, and you had a fair degree of success. And, and again, um, it's quite interesting. Your hero, one of your one of the rider, one of the athletes that you looked up to at that time was, uh, I believe, uh, John Tomac. Yeah, yeah. I think um, you know, growing up in, in Durango, there's a lot of rich history with with mountain biking <laughs> there. You know, John Tomac, Ned Overend. Um, you know, they were, uh, Greg Herbold, big, uh, mountain bike pioneers. And, um, yeah, I, I, you know, I enjoyed how, how Tomac just combined everything. And he was, yeah. he was like a Vanderpool, I guess, you know, he could win a road race. He could win a downhill race. He could win a cross country. It was everything that he could. You, that's know. really interesting. Cause I, um, to, roll out one of my old war stories briefly the reason i was just reading up and and some stuff you've done and that and a few interviews and i saw the john tomac um kind of uh, reference and uh, back in 1989 it, the uh, the world amateur road championships in chambury it was the year a guy called Halupchok from poland won and obviously greg lamond won the pro it was a really really hard race it was my first world championships when i was 19 and i remember the first time up the climb in chambury um, I was really struggling and um, to the point where I actually swung over, got off my bike and to see if my back wheel was rubbing on the brakes, lifted up the bike, spanned my back wheel and it wasn't rubbing. And I was like, oh my God, this is how fast these guys are going. This is the amateurs. Got back in, got on into the group and I, was, and I, I rode up to John Tomac and he was riding the road, you know, and, yeah. and I obviously knew him as a, he was a little bit older than me, but he was riding the amateur worlds as a, like as a mountain biker. But, and uh, I remember having this conversation with Tomac. I can't remember exactly what we said, but we're like, Oh my God, this is so brutal. And he was like, yeah, man, I, I can't believe it's so gnarly. And it was just this weird <laughs> conversation, me and Tomac swinging on the back yeah. of the bunch. And then obviously he went pro with 7-Eleven and rode Paris Bay. And you're really right. He was a kind of real pioneer in terms of the, the multidiscipline side of things, wasn't he? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, yeah, of course the, the times were different back then and everything was at least on the mountain bike was still very new and, and, you know, there's room for, uh, uh, creativity, I guess. And it was a bit more open-ended, but, but yeah, I think even, even now you can look back and say, wow, that was pretty impressive to be able to do all those different disciplines and, and do it so well and, and also do it in a, in a fun, fun way. Yeah. I mean, at what point then, 
did you make the conscious decision that you wanted to focus on riding on the road? I guess you must have been riding on a road bike as well because you obviously represented your, well, you represented your country at the World Championships at mountain bike level. But were you at that time thinking of the road or at what point did you think, yeah, I've had enough of mountain bike and I want to focus on, on road riding? Yeah, it was. I think it was a combination of things. Um, the, I think the year before I, that I transitioned to road racing, the, the sponsorship um, outlook was, was not super in the U S at the time. Sure. Um, and you know, it was, it was either you race for a, a factory team, like, like specialized or something, or you, you know, cobble together a bunch of sponsors and, you know, do your own logistics and try and piece together a race schedule, which I mean, w- was okay if, if, if I had really been passionate about, mountain bike racing. But at that point I was a bit, um, bit jaded on it, I guess. Yeah. It was, uh, yeah, I, I love riding my mountain bike, but it, the racing side of it, I was, um, yeah, not as in love with at that point. So then I, you know, had, uh, had friends that, that put me in contact with, with the just amateur road team. And, um, yeah, from there it was, uh, um, more in the in the road direction so did did you were you thinking kind of long term at that point you clearly wanted to ride your bike professionally but were you did you follow particularly the kind of european scene and were you i would imagine you were fully aware of what was going on were you an avid follower or was it more kind of casual kind of turning pro in the, the us to see where it went or did you have did you make a conscious decision or aim to to want to progress to kind of world tour level and race in europe uh, it was pretty casual, to be honest. I think right. um, when I when I just started on the road, it was more of a uh, like a placeholder, I guess, because I was still finishing my last year in, in university, and I thought, okay, I want to keep racing, and when I graduate, we'll see what I do if I get a job or if if I'm, you know, if it's still possible to to be a professional and earn some money. Um, yep. But, but I was also realistic. I said, okay, I don't want to be, uh, dragging this on and, and, you know, riding for, for minimum wage and not really being in the, in the real world, sure. if you will. Um, so yeah, even, even when I was on rally, I thought, okay, this is, this is a good team. I could stay here for a bit, but even at that point, I never thought or had ambitions really of, of riding in, in Europe. And then the results came, of course, primarily it was like the Tour of Utah, Colorado Classic, when you were racing against the European teams and you obviously bossed it in those races. Uh, and then I guess the offers came and then this opportunity arose. Yeah, yeah. The um, I think the first contact I had with uh, Yumbo was in Tour of California 2017. Mm. And I thought, well, that's pretty, uh, <laughs> pretty cool, I guess. Um, you know, do the physiological tests and everything. And, um, yeah, that, that all happened pretty fast. And then all of a sudden there was an offer and I thought, okay, uh, wow. that's pretty scary. Did you go to, did you go to Europe to do the testing or did that happen no. in the U S yeah, I, I just did in the U S. Um, right. and, uh, yeah, I think they were, they were happy with, with, um, the test and, um, and then shortly after the offer came, but I wasn't so n- much nervous about moving to Europe and everything with came with that. It was more, 
just how how different it would be to race in Europe and to, yeah. to have that pressure of being on a, a real pro team, you know, because with Rally, it was more or less just a, a group of buddies and, you know, it was pretty relaxed. We, we raced in the U.S., did a couple races in Europe here and there, but there was never that pressure like, okay, this is really your job. You have a job to be in front at this moment. It was, uh, yeah, a bit more relaxed. So it's, it's like you said, it's a big step. It's not as if you were kind of based in Europe on a Conti team, went to a pro Conti team, and there was a natural kind of progression that you you wouldn't even really notice. This was like seismic, wasn't it? I mean, um, from and not just geographically, you know, cult- culturally, the level that you're going to be at. It was. Um, what's the hardest thing for you in that in the year one then, uh, adapting to racing? Because you, 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 I wouldn't say you struggle, but it, it took a while to kind of get going, didn't it? What's the big? What's the biggest challenge for you? Yeah, I think the biggest challenge was just getting used to all those little details that that uh, maybe I would get away with. Uh, racing in the U.S., like yeah. uh, diet, uh, training, um, you know, positioning in the races. But, um, you know, for me growing up, I never I never had a bathroom scale. I never knew what uh, <laughs> how many calories were in nuts versus, uh, you know, pasta or anything like that. I just I was yeah. always skinny and I just ate yeah. and thought, OK, I'm skinny. I don't need to weigh myself. And then when I came to Europe, it was like, I still had that same mentality almost. So I would just eat whatever. Cause I thought, okay, I'm, I'm used to living at altitude and, and having that, um, metabolism, I guess. Sure. And, um, yeah, I, I just never paid attention to the fact that, okay, if you're five kilos overweight, you're maybe not going to be as good in a race sure. in Europe where maybe you could get away with that in the U S it's really, I mean, it's really interesting you, you t- kind of talk about that point because, you know, power, as you know, you know, of course, you know, power to weight ratio is what people are looking at. And there's a lot of criticism, isn't there? Or a lot of kind of the particular subjects is, is in the spotlight about young, young riders, you know, male and female, you know, racing at the highest level. And young riders, particularly, um, being told to lose weight, and and the and the kind of language that's been used, like riders are fat, you know. Um, this I think it's slightly different with you, but obviously to improve performance, especially if you're going to be a climber, you need to be as kind of light as possible. But when you joined the team, was that something that was hard for you? Did you think, yeah, that kind of makes sense? I mean, um, was did you feel any kind of pressure? Did, was it uncomfortable, or did you think, yeah, this just makes sense? I'm going to do it. Yeah, it was hard. I think, um, you know, yeah, like I said, I never had to to deal with it before. I'd never, I'd never been on a a diet. I would never before say, okay, I need to lose weight before a race. It was always opposite. It was like, oh, I need to eat uh, as much pasta for a week (laughs) before uh, before this one day, just because it had never, yeah, I guess just the the upbringing I had or I was never in in the more road scene before so I never associated weight with with performance but then all of a sudden when when the team says hey you uh (laughs) you look a bit uh uh not not like a climber then it's like okay sure sure it is it is it's it's really interesting though because I know when I again 20 30 years ago 30 years ago when I first went to France as an amateur to race um they 
I didn't really, I never weighed myself. And they said, you need to start weighing yourself. And, and they would look at what the volume of food that we were eating. And I think when you're young and you're in an endurance sport, you'd almost like, wouldn't say panic eat, but I, I remember doing stage races and ending up heavier because I would just eat so much because I didn't understand what my body could do. Yeah, me too. And as I got older into my 20s and even later into my 30s, I was not just thinking about I need to be light, I need to be light and, and making myself ill you know, or stressing myself. It was more yeah, I actually don't need to eat as much and was comfortable, but it took time, you know, and it's like, because when you're going into 160K, 200K race in the mountains, you want to make sure you fueled right. And, you know, and, and for me, it was making sure that I was, I was like, felt full, really full. But now, and back when I was racing at a good level, it was like, no, I just need to eat a little bit and just feel comfortable. It's, but it takes a little bit of time to understand your own, how your body works, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I think you, the, the confidence is, is one of the biggest factors too. If you, um, like for me, it was always the same, like you said. And I remember my first, uh, Vuelta, I was so nervous about having a, a day where I would be low on sugar or, um, something like that, that I was just eating so much. And yeah, yeah. I mean, if it's your first grand tour, you don't want to really experiment with the, the, the fine edge of, of being, right on your weight the whole time but also yeah. <laughs> you yeah, don't yeah, want to yeah. gorge yourself every night so it's, I, it, it's weird know. isn't it you know like somebody else especially something as fundamentally important as eating to put your trust in like it's not that you don't trust the coaches and the team and they've also got a lot of experience they know what they're doing but for somebody to tell you what you should and shouldn't be eating when you're doing that it's like you've got to really trust people haven't you and, and you've got to you know that's not something you can fully give the reins over to somebody else you kind of you're going to be you're going to approach that kind of with a little bit of caution aren't you yeah yeah absolutely i mean i think that was for me that was the theme of of the first uh half of my first year on the on uh the team was yeah there were so many new new ideas to me that i you know it's not that they weren't uh, credible sources or, or people I could trust, but it was just so different from what I was used to. And it, and it just took me a while to trust things like, uh, certain diets or certain types of training. And not that I wasn't coachable, but you know, the, your own intuition is also really, really powerful. So it, it always takes a while to, uh, build that trust. And, and at what point then did you kind of really feel, Okay, I'm kind of go, kind of going places now. At what point did you feel that you kind of got got used? That transition was over, and at what point did you feel that okay, I can now start to really develop as a rider? Um, I think the the second uh, half of the my first year in, in 2018, um, you know, I'd I'd made uh, mistakes in the in the first half and, and learned from that, and then. Um, yeah, had a had a good race in in Tour of Utah, and and that was mostly due to just correcting the things that I didn't pay attention to as much sure. in the first half of the season. Um, and I thought, okay, if if I can, you know, just keep improving like this, not do anything crazy, just you know, keep learning, keep getting experience, then maybe I can actually get to a point where I can say this is this is a career for me. Because yeah. up until that point, I thought, okay, if I can, if I can just get my contract renewed, that would be that would be great, um, and then I could shift my mentality more to, all right, let's let's try and get better, 
a little bit each year and and see where see where I can go. I, I remember watching that the race that when you talked about the tour Utah um because you didn't just do well did you you won three stages and the overall it was kind of yeah. I think it was the first time obviously people knew knew about you but it was the first time that you really exploded onto the scene and and this this name was being banded around I mean that that race was being broadcast on Eurosport obviously um and it was the first time I became aware of you personally but you must have gained and then and then following that you went on to ride your first grand tour at the Vuelta but you must have gained so much confidence from that win yeah, I think a lot of confidence. Um, you know, the only thing was that it, it was a, a climbing race in the U.S. at altitude. Yeah. So it was right in my wheelhouse. I mean, yeah, sure. if, yeah. <laughs> if, if there's a race uh, at altitude for me, it's it's the, the most perfect um, thing ever. And it's 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 harder than to, to judge that performance um, relative to what a race like that would be in, in Europe. So even after that, I thought, okay, it was, it was a really good result. I felt amazing, but I was still pretty nervous to be able to then do that in Europe because I knew how hard the racing was in Europe, uh, the, the depth of the, the talent and everything. So it was, it was nice for the confidence, but it was also a bit scary because then there were more people saying, Oh, you can do this and that. Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> even in my head, I knew. Okay, well, it, it still takes a while to translate that to, um, yeah, the Vuelta, for example, or any race in Europe. Sure, and then and then of course, straight off the back of that, you were into your first Grand Tour. You know, a very important you know event and moment in any rider's career. Just sum up that race for you. I mean, was how was it? Um, I mean, it was a solid performance. You finished sixty fifth. You got round okay. I mean, in what did you take away from that race? I think the biggest thing I took away was just the the energy saving. Um, right. I think the first first ten days I felt really good. Um, some of the first mountain stages there, I was yeah up with the you know best. 20, 10 guys or so. And I thought, okay, that's, that's my place. And, and I kind of had that mentality for, for too long. And, yeah. and then there was a point just halfway through where I, I had nothing left just cause I was always pushing a bit too much. And right. so, yeah, I think that was the biggest thing I learned was especially when, when it's a race that long or when you don't need to push every day that, yeah, any time you can save something is is worth it. But was it? Um, did you find it an enjoyable experience though? Yeah, yeah. there's a lot of suffering, though, isn't part. there? That you forget there's there's so much suffering, but oh. ultimately it's um, it's it's kind of weird. That, that's why pro cycling, I mean endurance sport, it's kind of perverse, isn't it? Because you put yourself through so much, and then you just reset, and then you go and do it all again. Just batter yourself. It's strange, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I remember. Yeah, in the in the third week of that that race, I was suffering so much. We did uh, Lagos de Covadonga, and right God, from the yeah. start, it started uphill. I was dropped, right, and every climb I was dropped, coming back, dropped, coming back, and I thought, <laughs> oh, this is this is absolutely <laughs> terrible. You know, every time the team car would go by, I'd get a Snickers or something, and barely made it to the top, and I thought, this is terrible. But yeah, then when you finish, you think, ah wasn't so bad. I'll, I'll do it again tomorrow, even though I know I'm going to be <laughs> dropped from <laughs> kilometer zero, but yeah, it's, uh, you, you go to interesting places, I guess, in your, yeah. in your mind. 
I mean, and then the follow the following season um, was completely different. Again, you obviously rode the the Giro, Dauphiné, and then into the Vuelta for the second time. And rather than just finishing it, you, you obviously took that magnificent stage when I was there at the top. Remember? Yeah, I remember. Yeah, I mean, and then you, I remember you crossed the line and you did that, uh, you did like a skid, like you're in a BMX park. It was just, <laughs> it was just so wonderful, but it was a really joyous, joyous moment. But, um, and, and you were obviously, it's only like 12 months. I mean, what do you think? I mean, clearly, you, I mean, you were working a lot as well for Primoz. You were given freedom on that particular day, as, as we know. But to carry that win off in the way that you did, you know, it must have been, and an exceptional, an amazing feeling for you. Yeah, it was was really amazing, um, especially since I didn't go into the race or anything thinking, oh, I need to win a stage. Or even in that stage itself, I didn't think I was riding to to maybe win it. I was just there for for tactical reasons, more or less. Yeah. So yeah, it, it's nice when it's a surprise like that. But I think. Um, after the fact it you know you you just get such a incredible rush uh such a happy feeling and then then you think yeah it's, it's pretty nice to to win and and it just yeah takes such a uh weight off your shoulders and and gives you so much uh confidence for for really the whole year no, it, it was it was a, it was such a popular win as well i mean that, that's another a question i'll talk about a little bit later on but um what, what, what I want to ask you now is when you're a young rider, I mean, even when you're an older, when you're a younger rider, especially in your kind of like late teens, early 20s, and, and I used to look at going into the kind of off season in the winter as almost like going into like this kind of weird pupa state, like a caterpillar into kind of um, to turning, to turning into like a, a moth, turning into a moth or a beautiful butterfly. Each year you physically notice kind of differences. And obviously that first big year at world tour level for you, 2018 okay it was hard but you saw big improvements you got your first you know, grand tour uh, in in the bag and then you you end up winning a stage of the Vuelta the following season did you notice when you came into the season at the start of 2019 something different about yourself or was it very very marginal did you kind of think oh, I'm, I'm a lot stronger I'm, I'm doing things differently was it something that you could perceive yourself that you'd noticed that you felt you were a better rider yeah, it's it's hard to say I think a lot of it for me was was mental, just knowing that that I was capable of doing um, certain things. Um, yeah. But then, yeah, 2019, for example, I I had uh, you know a lot of good good confidence from the year before in 2018. So, um, and and in the spring, I thought, okay, let's let's start off strong in the spring, and and I was really motivated in training, and then. Yeah, every race in the spring, I was absolutely terrible. I thought, okay, now I'm back to zero. I, I feel like I did in my first races as a pro. So it's always, um, yeah, it's never always that upward uh, trajectory. Um, so so then I was thinking, okay, but how, how did I get back down to this point? Because I thought that I had changed so much physically yeah. and mentally after, um, after a good season the year before. So, yeah. I think it's a bit of both, but I think for me at the end of the day, I, I have to consciously think, okay, I'm starting from zero. I, I have to work hard and, yeah. and be smart and yeah, nothing, uh, nothing comes for, for free or nothing comes easily. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's obviously there was this kind of natural progression and alongside your progression as, as an individual, just taking, looking at your own personal results, your own kind of development, 
quite obviously was was the emergence or not the emergence because Jumbo Visma you know have always been an exceptionally strong team but over the last two seasons it's been incredible what the team has done and I wouldn't say it's a transformation but they have become the strongest team and the, the team with the most kind of depth across the board uh, and you've been an integral part of that team in the Grand Tours uh, an exceptionally valued part and, and, a, and you know not just a valued part an, an integrally important part of it but before we talk about your part in, in that kind of team and in that kind of process. From your perspective, how has that kind of come together? Because it's been it's been astonishing to see um, the kind of emerge the, the dominance of the team, especially in the mountains, the way you control things, um, very much like Ineos did in the past, or Team Sky as, as they were. And how has that kind of happened? Because it's it's amazing to see um, the way you work as a, as a collective. It really, really is. Oh, I think it's it's a lot of things. Um, you know, just the the little details that, that the team looks at. Um, you know, I think a lot of things like uh, nutrition, uh, training on on some teams, maybe they're not looked at um, super in depth, or or they're not um, you know collectively looked at. So you know, one guy has his own trainer and he's doing this, and then another guy is is off doing that and, and there's no, uh, central dir- direction, I guess. So oh, okay. I think the big Quite thing is that, you know, we, they have the training philosophy. Everybody is, you know, more or less, uh, train, not training together, but training with the same philosophy and goals in mind. So you, you get to that race and you're, you're prepared. Um, and there's no, uh, yeah. What ifs and, so I think that's a huge thing. And then I think the same thing goes for um, kind of the nutrition program that they've uh, started in the team. Just every every day you're, you're topped off on energy. Um, you know, you believe in the system. And um, yeah, the nutrition is such a vital part of, of your day-to-day performance. So yeah. I think th- those are two examples of just all the, the little things that, um, yeah, they, they bring together and, and that, that are available to, to everybody. It's not just, uh, three riders that get this special, uh, diet and, and training and, and cause they're the, the leaders it's, it's everybody. And, and you can see that when you come to a race and, and everybody is at a super high level. Mm. So, I mean, qu- quite clearly, I mean, it's as if, not as if, I mean, you clearly from what you just said, there's not just your individual training strategy, although you do have your own pro- kind of programs, but they are all aligned with the same peaks and, and the same set of objectives within within a grand tour. Um, and clearly, because people ask, well, how can these guys all be at it's, it's such good condition all at the same time? And it, it's probably because of what you just said. I mean, it's, um, it's a philosophy that maybe does go on in other teams. I don't know. I'm not embedded in any team, um, although I was a professional. But um, it is an interesting one, isn't it? Because generally when you talk about coaching, it's just on a rider-to-rider basis, isn't it? With with their own objectives. But but when you overlay the kind of team objective, that, that gives it another kind of dimension. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, it also depends on the person. You have to be willing to... Um, you know, go, go in this, in this direction that the, that the team more or less has, has laid out. And yeah, you have to believe in the, uh, different protocols, if you will, um, that, that, that they've, uh, uh, outlined. So, sure. um, 
Yeah. I mean, it, not that it's uh, they do it in an overbearing way, but yeah, you also have to buy into everything. Otherwise, it's it's not going to um, do you any good. And clearly, as well as that, there's the training side of it. There's the nutrition, but you know, clearly, I mean, let's take the tour team for example. Yourself, Primoz, George Bennett, um, Arnold Janssen, Haysink, Tom, Tony Martin, and Wild Van Aert. It's an amazing lineup. But you guys have to kind of execute what you kind of did. Although, obviously, you don't need reminding. It was a, it didn't quite end the way that you wanted it to. But you rode with such panache, uh, and the team collectively rode amazingly. You must clearly get on as a group as well. I mean, communication and and trust and belief are all things that are absolutely vital to to have a cohesive, effective unit. Uh, and also, you need to enjoy what you do together as well. Oh, definitely. I think, um, yeah, we, we spent... Uh, Oh, maybe two months before the the tour, more or less, um, together. Whether that was racing or or uh, altitude camp, so we were all more or less in the same same bubble. And um, yeah, even then, just around the dinner table or you know day to day training, you you have the sense that okay, this is a really special group. I mean, not that everybody has the same personality. Not everyone gets along perfectly all the time, but but it's just because everybody is their own person and you know is not afraid to um you know give honest feedback to each other and and things like that so yeah i think those those months in training and and in the races before the tour just just brought us really close together and and we weren't afraid to, to tell each other what to do or what we could have done better and then you know at the end of the day we're uh yeah, just a really happy group. So it was. Um, that's that's, that's a really yeah, that's a really really interesting point because again, looking at, I've got the list written in front. Of, when you look at all of you as individuals, and when you think about it, that's quite the fact that you're all. Oh, they work very well as a cohesive unit. You openly admit that sometimes it's important that riders for, for, for something to work, anything to work that there needs to be, you know, communication, even if you disagree with somebody, because that's otherwise things fester in the background, don't they? But looking at the characters that you've got, Tony Martin, Walt Van Aert, you know, Haysink and, and De Moulin and George, you're, they're all really, not just strong bike riders, but they're really strong characters and, and they're not afraid to kind of speak out at all, are they? So I would imagine at, at points, there's some really interesting conversations going on between you guys and, and the team management. Yeah, for sure. I think, yeah, everybody, they're all, they're all good guys. And, um, you know, but, but they're also not afraid to say, okay, where did we mess up on, yeah. on this stage? Uh, Hey, you, you could have done that better, things like that. But, um, yeah, also I have to say having, having Tony in the group is, is so huge because he's just this really calm presence and and he knows what to do he'll say it but he, he does it in such a calm way that it's like everybody says okay we can take a breath even if <laughs> this, this situation is not ideal we can take a breath and it's going to be okay because tony said it's going to be okay so <laughs> well, he's a he's a he was a policeman wasn't he i mean like, like yeah, myself yeah. So, he's, so he's kind of um you've got to have a bit of a calm head you know and uh, that's nice to have though somebody who's kind of forthright but also is a calming influence you know especially when there's different voices sometimes that's really that's really really interesting actually sticking to the team to just a another question i've got on that i mean um do you think because of the ridiculously challenging year that we, everybody has had across the board do you think the fact that you had to be in more of a bubble than you usually would ahead of the ahead of the tour ahead of um, the vuelta 
do you think that actually helped you bond or did you think it didn't really change or did you think it actually was a negative what do you think about uh, this kind of weird year year we had yeah I, i think it helped a bit um you know even in a normal season i think this group for the the tour we would have raced together and also trained together quite a bit so um yeah just just the fact that we had our seasons lined out more or less um going into the season we we had that idea that we would be together a lot but um yeah of course in a normal season maybe more more things can change and and um that that group's not always together but um yeah i i think uh it was, it was definitely a benefit to just have that, that time together. And, um, you know, also the, the peace of mind, I guess, knowing you have this chunk of, of time to get ready for the, for this race. And there's not all the other, uh, B factors of, of travel and, uh, injuries and, and things like that, that can happen in the, in the lead into uh, a race like the tour. So who, out of all the guys that have just lifted for the tour, who, did you did you rotate rooming lists or did you just stick with one person? Who did you have for the tour? We were in single rooms the whole time, actually. Of course, yeah, 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 yeah. Of course, yeah, yeah. Okay, so that you got no complaints about your roommate because that was you. Yeah, no complaints <laughs> on my on my own schedule the whole time, which was uh, yeah, it was actually pretty nice. I mean, sometimes that's the thing. It's at a race, you're always in this hectic, well, not hectic environment, but it, there's always noise and and yeah. uh schedules and everything like that so sometimes it's nice just to come back to your room and you have your your uh, alone time and, yeah uh, you can press are you, are you neat are you quite neat i, I again i'm, I'm, I'm kind of i know you're a little bit seen around i'm trying i'm trying I'm, I'm trying to imagine what your room would be like uh, i'm, not, I'm guessing not overly neat not no. ocd but but yeah i try and run a run a tight ship i guess okay. <laughs> yeah <laughs> Who's the most untidy guy on the team then? I mean, looking back back to like normality, back here sort of last like 2019, 20, 2018, wow. who, who's a guy that's like, okay, nice guy, or but it's like, oh my God, this is just a nightmare. It's well, just, see, who's the messiest? I'd say, I'd say Tom or George. <laughs> really? George Bain or Tom DeMoulin and Messi? Yeah, that's yeah. funny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely one of those guys. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, and there's a, a, a good mate of mine who rode for Sky, and I don't know whether you, you might have heard of him, a guy called Jeremy Hunt. Um, yeah. Really, really loved lovely guy um rose a pro back in my day but was a former british champion but anyway he's a lovely guy uh but your room with him when i was in the gb team and he would just walk into the room i would i was i wasn't ocd but like you i was, I was kind of quite, quite neat but he would literally just open his suitcase and nothing was folded empty it onto the floor so he had this pile of stuff oh, and that God. was it that was his base so if we're on like a training camp anywhere there'd just be this pile that he used to pull from and just chuck stuff down and it was like a it had just like his suitcase had exploded um, <laughs> in the room. But uh, yeah, I'm sure Tom or, or, or George aren't as bad as that though. But, um, but there you go. Now, do you like snacks? Oh, I love snacks. Well, I've got a little a bit of a, we're going to move on after the sort of, we could ask you, I'm asking you some more questions a little bit later, a little bit more of a chat, but um, we're going to play something now. And I'm sure Niall will just tee up the, uh, the jingle. It's called guess that snack. Guess that snack. You can also, if if you if you want, set rate the jingle. What do you reckon? I love it. 
I'm, I'm, I'm getting visuals from it, actually. It's so good. <laughs> that's the first person to really compliment us. That's yeah. Cecile Utrup Ludwig, who provided the voice for that. She's got a great really? voice. Yeah. Right. There we go. Um, okay, so guess that snag. I will explain the concept. It's a very easy um, kind of premise, really. I have in front of me four commonly known snacks. Uh, and I've also, I did an interview the other, the other week with, or the other day, so with Justin Williams. So I thought, I need to Americanize the snacks <laughs> so you're not left out in the cold and you're thinking, what is Matt on about? So I've got four snacks in front of me, four like cr- crunchy snacks, and I'm going to tell you what they are. And once I've done that, I'm going to proceed to insert each one into my mouth and crunch it over the microphone. Oh, and okay. you have to guess by the sound of the crunch what snack oh, I'm, okay. uh, I'm eating. So I need you to, I mean, you're a man who knows how to focus. We're going to talk about your poker face a little bit later in the podcast, but I really need you to um, be on your A game for this because this is important because some some riders and some guests have set the bench pretty benchmark pretty high. So okay. I'm going to list you the snacks now, Set. Okay, so we've got... Pringles. Yeah. Okay. So everybody knows a Pringle. There, it's, it's it's basically the global potato-based snack. Okay. I've got some toffee popcorn. Okay. So toffee okay. popcorn made by Butterkist. I don't know if that brand's in America, but it's okay. popcorn covered in like a toffee coating. We've also got proper American here. Some Cheetos. Oh yeah. Yeah. Cheese flavored Cheetos. <laughs> Do you, do you miss American snacks? I do sometimes, yeah. I do. <laughs> and finally, you can hear me opening the bag very, very loudly because it's a big bag. I've got some uh, tortilla chips, just classic. Oh. No fuss, no frills, just from a very local good. supermarket, lightly salted, uh, the perfect shape for dipping, snacking, and sharing. Yeah. So uh, there we go. So now I'm going to insert one of these snacks into my mouth. So just a reminder, we've got Pringles, Toffee popcorn, Cheetos, and tortilla chips. Okay. All right. So we're gonna. I'm gonna put the first snack in my mouth now, and I need you, Sepkus, to guess. Here we go. First one's just going in. I can do it again if you want. Don't rush. I'll, I'll need one more. Yeah. Okay. One more. Let me just get nice and close to the microphone. It's a win-win situation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I get to eat more snacks, so yeah, every, yeah, everyone, <laughs> everyone's a winner, mate. And yeah. I do love a snack. So, and it goes again. Just listen carefully. Okay. I'm going to go toffee popcorn. Oh, mate, no, it's not. No? No. Oh, oh Sep. Well, look, still got three more to go. You can pick this back up. Don't worry. You've just been dropped from the back of the break, but... This, the gap's only about three or four seconds. You can close it, all right? So, okay, next one is coming up now. Here we go. Come on, this is, this, there's a lot riding on this, mate. It's going in now. Okay, here we go. I'll pop another one in. Yeah. I've just dribbled on the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> sorry mate oh you're you're, uh, you're having a good time in there i'm having a whale of a time mate um you're probably thinking what on earth uh, yeah what is that so uh, one more so remember it's, it's either a tortilla chip a cheeto a pringle or a popcorn let's pop it in again oh i, I, I want to say popcorn again 
Because it doesn't sound like anything else. It's not, a, it's not a popcorn, mate. Oh, no. no. Oh, oh, God. Right. Okay. Next one. Okay. It's going in now. Think about your last couple of answers. It's going in. <laughs> okay. Tortilla chip. <laughs> no, it's not. No. <laughs> That, that, mate, that was a toffee popcorn. No. Oh, no. Oh, no. I think you might be the first person to get, all to, to get it all wrong. So, but I've not told you the other. I've got one more snack. Um, so come on, mate. Oh, Just man. Over time. Over time. Uh, over to, it's okay. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna get you over the line, mate. <laughs> you might have had a double puncher and your frame's cracked, yeah. but we can get you over the line. There's a, there's a spare bike with the wrong pedals on the roof, but we can get you across the line. That's all I need. <laughs> Right, last one, mate. Last one. Here we go. Listen carefully. Focus. Here we go. Okay, that one tortilla chip. Yes, that was a tortilla chip, okay. mate. Brilliant stuff. Well, there you go. Oh. Even got a little round of applause there, mate. That was, that was brutal. Are you all right? Do you want a little bit of a lie down? Or put some, have you got your compression socks on? No, I, I've just got a, a FOMO right now. I'm jealous of all the, the stuff you get to eat, man. Blimey. There you go. Well, that was, guess that snack, and one out of four, which equates um, to 25%. Well, I'll thanks very much for that. Yeah, you'll take it. I mean, at least you didn't get uh, zero because yeah. I don't think anybody has zero, but you, I was really, what I was actually, I had, palpitations i thought oh my god such a nice guy and he's going to get zero yeah. and then he just want he might want to leave the podcast we just anyway. it off. <laughs> right okay um let's look a little bit about about this kind of astonishing year um that, that we've had we sort of touched on it a little bit um the kind of talked about the tour and, and how amazingly you, you rode there i mean when you look back at the tour and when you look back uh, to, well, this this year as a whole, and there's a lot of talk, quite obviously, about your your ability as a rider, and and your future. And I know I've, I've read, kind of read several interviews about you, kind of you know, saying you're kind of not ready yet. You've got still a lot to learn, and I think that is the case. Um, but what do you think now? I mean, looking forwards, um, you must be very excited first and foremost about the about the future. I think I think I've no doubt that you believe that you can progress a lot more, but what about going for a grand tour at some point in the next few years? Do you think now that that's something that you are focused on? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, it's, um, it's an interesting feeling, I guess, because at, at this point I know I'm, uh, motivated enough to say, okay, this is what I want to shoot for. But, um, yeah, like you said, there, there's a lot of things I, I need to work on to to be um, at the point where where I could have a, a team, uh, you know, supporting me and 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 feel comfortable about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I I think it's you know for me it's it's definitely a goal to to try that, but also it's it's not. For me, it's not the end-all, be-all of, of who I am as a cyclist. You know, there, there's a lot of different races. There's a lot of different uh, roles as a cyclist. But, um, 
yeah, I think at the end of the day, it would be a shame not to, to really go for that, um, you know, as a, as a goal to go for the Grand Tours. So do you think, I mean, uh, again, I don't know if you know your program for next year. We're still still quite early, um, early in the year, I guess, or early, early in relation to planning next year. But um, is your, uh, is there any kind of, at what point do you think you'll be given m- more, more freedom? Because um, you're more than happy, clearly, to, to ride in the service of others at the moment. But there's three grand tours. When you look at the kind of lineup, I mean, first and foremost, Jumbo Visma has ridiculous strength in depth for the grand tours. But clearly, in terms of your performance over the last couple of years, that there must be a point at which the team are going to say, we need to give you a chance. Has, has that been discussed specifically? Or is it more another year as, as, of, as, of kind of as you were, um, as, you, as you've ridden for the last couple of years? Well, we've discussed it a little bit. I think, um, yeah, they from the, the team side, they, they definitely want to give me the opportunities. Um, and uh, I think... For, for both the team and I, that ideally that would just start out in, in some week-long races, um, sure. you know, and and yeah, we, we also have so many good riders on the team that uh, I think there would also be quite a few races where um, it would be me along with, um, you know, one of the other leaders, which, which I was also totally fine for me. Um, yeah. You know, it's kind of how we had it in, uh, in the Vuelta this past year. Um, you know, obviously Primo's was the main leader, but guys like uh, George and I, we they still gave us the chance to to be up there in GC uh, yeah. for, for as long as we could. So, um, you know, it, it helps take the, the pressure off a little bit. And talking, I mean, looking at the last, I mean, obviously you did an amazing, you rode amazing at the side of, of, of Primoz Roglic um, for both, well, not just last year, but this year in particular, um, which again, it's brought you even more to the forefront of, of people's consciousness. I mean, what is what is your relationship like with Primoz? It clearly, you clearly have a very, very strong bond there, but um, because you are essentially his kind of main lieutenant now in the very, very high mountains, and how you guys clearly get on. But what is that relationship like? Yeah, it's it's a good uh, good relationship, like you said. I think it's um, yeah for me, it's it's an easy. Uh, he's an easy guy to just get along with and um, you know talk to. I think. You know, we're, we're both maybe more, uh, quiet people, but when we're, when you get used to, to being around someone or are more comfortable in, in a certain group, then, then you can bring out uh, more of yourself. So I think, yeah, we're, we're similar in that way. So, um, yeah, it's not that we have to like talk all the time and be joking, but, uh, you know, we, yeah, it's, uh just easy relationship. There's never any like, uh, yeah, I would say it's just never overly serious. It's super, super lighthearted. Yeah. That's nice. That's nice. I mean, what have you learned from Primoz? I mean, there's obviously you're riding in his service, but in doing that, you often, you often learn things about yourself and you learn things about other riders. What, what have you learned about you riding, uh, in the way you have, um, particularly for, for Primoz in the last three grand tours? I, I think, at least from what I've learned from Primo's himself is just if, if he makes a mistake or if there's something he could have done better, you immediately see that, uh, register in his mind. And, and then the next time it's, he's improved it or fixed it. Um, so that's, that's pretty impressive. He's, he's really, uh, adaptable and and he's open to to learning and and getting the, the best out of himself like that. Um, and then, 
as for myself riding with primos, I think, you know, he's, he's the number one rider in the world and, and everybody's watching him. And even then he can still win. Um, you know, so I, I kind of see how that dynamic plays out in the, yeah. in the finals of these mountain stages, for example. And so for every, every kilometer further that I'm with him, I see more of, you know, the, the timing of everything, the, the patience you need to, to be able to win when, when you're the, the number one guy. So I think that's uh, been pretty interesting to see this, especially this past year. Yeah. I mean, there was a, a key moment, of course, of se- several key moments where, I mean, the, the thing about this year, just stepping away from yourself and, and Primoz for, for a, a brief moment is the, is the closeness of the racing. I mean, it's been for, from a, a neutral standpoint and from somebody who obviously has the privilege of commentating on the races as well too. The racing has been so, it's been thrilling. It's been a difficult year, but the, the racing has been very tight. So the ability to race tactically, understand yourself, come back from disappointment has, has been, as a spectacle, racing this year has been astonishing. Yeah, it's been super tight, I think. Um, you know, in the, in the Tour and the Vuelta, there's so many moments you, you look back on and think, okay, if we, if we would have done that uh, differently, we, we maybe could have lost it there. Or, oh, that stage we could have gained a little bit there or you know it's it's there's so many um margins i guess that uh that you you look back on and think wow that was a, a tight tight race i mean and one one in particular um if we look back to the Giro, the stage eventually won by hugh carthy uh, on stage 12 of the welter uh, to the up the angrelu um when just describe what happened i mean because it was First and foremost, one of the hardest climbs in the world, if not the world. It's a brutal climb. And um, what what did you, when Primoz started to kind of fade a little bit, and it's one of those climbs that you have to ride at your own pace. You can't make rapid accelerations on that climb because you'll just blow, won't you? But how did you kind of nurse him through that moment? Just talk us about, because you were so important to state that he needed you by his side, isn't he? I mean, not so much for pacing because you've got to ride your own pace, but just describe what it was like at that moment. Yeah, it was an interesting moment, actually, because um, we we actually didn't communicate so much leading into the climb or in the, the first kilometers of the Angley Rue. So um, for me, I didn't know exactly how he was feeling or if, if he was feeling maybe a bit subpar. Yeah. Um, yeah, because for me, I think, okay, he's always feeling – uh, at least 90%. So whatever happens, he's going to be good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. And, and then, yeah, that was maybe the first little mistake I made was just after Jonas finished, I, I started to, to ride after, um, uh, Moss attacked and, and yeah, I did it at a, a pace that normally he's comfortable with. And then I looked back a little bit and he was losing the, the wheel. I thought, okay, is he just, playing mind games with people or is he actually suffering? But at that moment you can't really communicate in the radio saying, Oh, slow down. Cause then everybody's yeah. going <laughs> to, they're going to hit. Yeah. Yeah. I'm at. Yeah. So, um, yeah. When, when it was later obvious that, that he was not having his best day, then yes, I stayed with him and, um, yeah, just kind of tried to keep the momentum in, in certain sections or, you know, close off gaps to the next riders. So, just mentally that helps because you, you feel like you're more in the wheel 
um, and not just alone suffering. But uh, sure. yeah, when it when it flattens out over the top in the last uh, kilometer or so, it's it was actually quite windy and, and open. Um, and so there, I think we, we made up a lot of time just, you know, having me there blocking the wind from the side and, and riding as hard as I could just to try and, uh, limit the, the damage in the end. Cause I mean, it was, there was, there'd been many pivotal moments in all of the grand tours. That was what, that was one of them where your, where your work and your dedication kind of paid off. But did you, aside from, did you actually say much to him? Because again, it was one of those moments where he clearly hadn't blown. He just needed to kind of back off and not push into the red. So did he need much kind of encouragement? Was there any, were, were there many words spoken? Cause that always fascinates me. And people always ask, do they talk much? And when you can see it, sometimes you can see how saying one or two words but on a climb like that, actually just saying a few words is going to take a lot of energy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think, I, I don't think I said anything actually. I think a lot of it was, we, we could hear the, the time gaps in the radio. Hmm. Um, so that was helpful. And um, yeah, I think, you know, for, for me, at least if I, if someone's writing for me and I'm in that position, then I would think, okay, don't, don't talk to me. I just need to suffer this one out and, and get to the, <laughs> get to the end. So, yeah. I mean, and what think looking at, looking at yourself and again, stepping away from the team, it's looking at you as a, as a climber. I mean, one of the, uh, the interesting things about yourself is talks about the poker face for you know guess that snack but you do have an, an amazing poker face is that is that a conscious kind of effort or do you just or is it just a state of being that you kind of attain when you're climbing because you do look remarkably relaxed probably when you when you look at a front group in a high mountain when there's maybe like 10 12 guys left and you're riding on the front and you're generally the last guy who's looking after primos you seem to be almost you seem to have this kind of serenity uh about you um if you don't mind me saying and i'm not the only one to have observed this um and some people like accusing you of like almost like looking like you're riding to the shops i know you're going to be on the limit and you're going to be hurting you're putting out over six watts a kilo but um are you aware that you look so relaxed and so easy on a bike <laughs> oh i i think like you said it's it's more of a state of being i think yeah you know especially in in those final moments of of a climb i i just go to a different type of, of focus. Yeah. Um, and yeah, maybe that that's kind of a nice, uh, thing about the lack of fans on the road because you just have this pure, uh, focus on, on what's happening mm. of, of how you're feeling. Um, and yeah, for me, when I'm in that moment, I actually feel really good, but it's, it's also a fine line between that moment and where it's over the edge. So yeah, yeah. when I'm, when I'm relaxed, uh, like, like maybe I appear on, on TV, I, I do feel like, uh, yeah, in, in control of my effort. Um, and, and yeah, it's, it's, it's a really nice feeling, but then, yeah, when, when something, whether that's, uh, the pace is just a bit too much or whatever else happens, then, then, yeah, then I can, uh, then my tongue comes out and then that's when I'm <laughs> suffering. So, so that's that, going to be the signal. When the tongue emerges, that's, that's the, that's the, we know that, oh no, Sep yeah. is finally, yeah. finally so on the road. If you see me on a, on a windy day, a crosswind day on the flats, my tongue is usually out. So that's okay. never a, a serene moment for me. <laughs> that's kind of good. To, that, that's good. So, I mean, and, and another, just a quick point on, on your kind of climbing technique. Obviously you're you know, one of the finest climbers in the world. You've, you know, when you're brought up kind of riding in the mountains, of course. Um, 
people are talking a lot of these days about breathing, about the, the ability to kind of breathe. Is that something that you have thought about? Is it something that's discussed in the team about controlling your kind of breathing, trying to control um, that side of things? Because I know there's a lot more research into the conscious, consciously breathing rather than just letting your body breathe and kind of pant. Is that something that is that you're aware of or is it not something that's kind of um, crossed your bowels? Yeah, for me, I, I haven't thought about it too much. Mm. Um, I know I, there's some teammates that, that do more breathing exercises and, and things like that. But um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's something to do with growing up at altitude or something sure. like that, where for me, it's, it's never a respiration issue. It's just how much my, <laughs> how much my legs hurt. So, yeah. Fair enough. Fair. I mean, we're going to have to wrap things up very, very shortly. I mean, it's been a, an absolutely fascinating conversation. I'm sure we could have, we, well, we easily could have gone on for another couple of hours, to be honest with you. But my final question, um, actually, I've got two. Um, tell me something about yourself, Sep, that you haven't told anybody else in an interview. Something a little, not a secret as such, but like, is there something that we, that come, that might be kind of cool about you or something interesting, maybe even weird? Oh, let's see here. Um, let's see. Okay. There's something like kind of bike related that or sport related. Um, yeah. so when, when I was growing up in Durango, we had our yeah, local bike program, Durango Devo, but every, every Friday we would play bike polo. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, horse polo, but, but bike polo. So we would, uh, yeah, the, the whole week before we would, the, uh, with our with our old ski poles from the winter before and and trying to fashion the uh, craziest uh, new age bike polo mallet so you yeah, just uh, hack a PVC pipe and then drill a hole through it so the the tip of the ski pole can fit in there and then yeah. um, and then yeah that's the, the the outline of the polo mallet but I remember every week we were just trying to devise a mallet that was, was light, but also strong. So if you used like a cross country pull, it would usually break because it was too much uh, carbon or something. But if you had just a normal Alpine skiing pull, it was way too heavy and you wouldn't get the accuracy, but it was uh, <laughs> different, uh, different sport, not as elegant as, as horse polo maybe. But, so uh, basically like polo stick design, that is, that is quite odd. Um, but uh, it clearly gave you the fact that it stuck in your memory it must have been pretty significant and to put on the set, but there you go. And, and one last thing as well, um, obviously lockdown, people are kind of spending a lot more time indoors and stuff. And I've asked a few of my guests what they're watching on kind of, on Amazon or Netflix, you've got a, a recommendation uh, for somebody to watch during these dark nights that's, uh, that really kind of entertains you and that you're really into. Oh man, let's see. It's been a while since I've just watched uh, a show on my own time, I guess, but my girlfriend and I, we've been watching Grey's Anatomy, but that's, that's okay. long, uh, <laughs> probably out of style at this point, but Okay, no, Grey's Anatomy. I mean, it's uh, I've never watched it, but it's got. I know it's kind of very popular. I mean, it's quite a few seasons as well, but it's, oh, it's, it's been around a while, isn't it? Yeah. Well. Okay. Well, uh, Grey's Anatomy might be the one that because I'm looking for a new, um, a new kind of box set to watch. So I might tap into to Grey's Anatomy. I'm, I'm in the same boat as you, but I think the the show I watch most, Fargo, is really good. The TV show. Oh, I think three seasons maybe. Yeah, there, there's a new one coming. There's a, oh, they're really? making a new one. I, honestly, people talked to me for year, well, years about Fargo, um, and I only finished watching season three 
a week and a half ago. Oh, really? And only two nights ago, Seth, get this, I only, for the first time, watched the movie from 96. Oh. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm so, but it, what, what, a, what amazing program. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Just that real dark humor and, uh, yeah, just, yeah, good stuff. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, anybody listening, that is a top, top, top recommendation. Probably the best recommendation we had because I can kind of rubber stamp it. It is amazing. So watch the movie and watch the three seasons and there's another one coming soon check out Fargo folks Sep it's been it's been a real pleasure mate I've really enjoyed your company thanks so much for giving us uh, giving up your time for us today oh absolutely Matt thanks for having me and uh, yeah fun talking to you as always and see you at the uh, the races coming up soon definitely definitely we'll uh, have a good have a good off season have a good Christmas and uh, I'll see you on the road in 2021 all being well mate thanks very much Matt see you later cheers, cheers. What a delightful guest Sepp really was, and modest too, and I particularly enjoyed how he's not letting the quest for a grand tour win of his own define him as a cyclist. And I wish him all the best over the festive period, especially considering how much meat he has packed in his freezer. And of course, all the best for 2021 and beyond. Thanks to Perry App Gwyneth for the podcast theme tune as ever, and thanks to you for listening. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and rate the pod, and why not recommend it to your cycling buddies or your local Basque butcher, selling copious quantities of street meat, if you have one. And finally, a huge thanks to Sepp Kush. <laughs> I just started laughing at the end of that bit. Anyway, and finally, a huge thanks to Sepp Kush for being our super podcast guest today. Cheers all. See you soon. Thank you.